Well, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're new to Staples Mill, we're walking through 2 Peter in these days, and we're in chapter 2. In just a moment, we'll pick up together in verse 10. Today, we're talking about the need for discernment. They tell us during natural disasters in our country that many people are victimized twice. There is whatever the storm did to bring damage to a family, but then the scammers come in. Can you imagine anything more heartless than that? People have lost maybe everything, and then somebody comes along to try to take more from them. It's evil, and so grateful that even FEMA has on their website ways to avoid being scammed. They have, in fact, one article, five ways to recognize and prevent scams. I'm not going to read you all five of those because I'm not here to preach on that, but I will give you one example. How about this one? Know how scammers ask you to pay. They often insist that you pay by sending money through a money transfer company or by putting money on a gift card and then giving them the number on the back. So there is a common tactic of these frauds trying to scam people during natural disasters. Well, we're here in 2 Peter, and we find something similar going on. Peter's going to tell us what are the common tactics of the false teachers, these that we would call spiritual scammers. What is it that we should be on the lookout against? Now, in recent weeks here in chapter 2, Peter's just been talking a lot about these false teachers. We've seen together the danger that these false teachers are to the churches. We've also seen the severe judgment that's coming on the false teachers. But today's another day for us to consider this topic yet one more time and to consider how you and I should be discerning against the common tactics and the common character traits of these false teachers. And here we are in 2 Peter 2, now verse 10. It's an extended passage, so look along, look along in your Bible so you can stay on track with me. Verse 10, speaking of the false teachers, he says, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme <clears throat> the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce, pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wage for wrongdoing, they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and, the restra and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Lengthy passage. 
a lot of wonderful truth there. Maybe this afternoon you'll want to take that and read all of it again. But if we just were to summarize this, we would find three traits of false teachers that you and I need to be on the alert against. Three areas for our discernment. First of all, this one, when it comes to false teachers, watch out for arrogance. Watch out for arrogance. We see this in verse 10 where they're described as being bold and willful, being arrogant. Did you notice verse 18? Speaking loud boasts of folly. So one of the marks of a false teacher is they are full of pride. They are arrogant. Contrast that with what God calls us to. We're called to have humble hearts. We are to be gladly in submission to Jesus. Why, why would we not want to be in glad submission to Jesus, the one who died for us and was raised from the dead? Of course, glad submission. We want to be submissive to our Lord. So a true believer wants to live under the Lordship of Christ, but the mark of an ungodly false teacher is arrogance, so bold as to even deny Scripture. And so it's been an issue from even in the first century but it's still an issue in our day. We'll find people who are false teachers, and they are arrogant. I remember seeing this back in college. I would see these smug but charming professors who had tried to undercut the teaching of Scripture in class after class, and they led so many of my fellow students astray. I think what was so compelling about them is they would talk with such apparent wisdom, and the student who's 18 or 19 is hearing this, that the Bible's not true, or this miracle didn't happen, all these kind of things they were saying, and the student would sit there and think, oh, I guess my church back home, they're just ignorant there. I guess my dumb pastor, <laughs> he didn't know the things that this enlightened professor saying, and so I just watched classmate after classmate just follow whatever this professor would say. But really, not so fast. It's not that this professor is any smarter than anybody else. He's an unbeliever. He just, has, he just has his presuppositions, and he's got this captive audience of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and he's just able to sway them to his position of unbelief. But there are plenty of brilliant people who affirm the Scriptures. Randy Alcorn recently wrote about Dr. Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a University of North Carolina religion professor who is a well-known skeptic against Christianity. Here's how Randy Alcorn called out the pride of Bart Ehrman. He says, I'm struck by Ehrman's usual unswerving confidence that he is 100% right. He is, just like evangelicals, relying on an ultimate authority. But instead of the Bible, it's his own intellect. So Ehrman is one of those who writes in lectures and basically asserts that every Christian theologian before he came along has been wrong. But he is right. And sadly, he has written many uh, multiple best-selling books where he persuades gullible people to go along with him into that error. He's a false teacher, no longer really considering himself a Christian. He talks about his Christian upbringing. But he does claim to know the Bible, he thinks, better than others. And he acts like he's very sincere, like, I don't want to try to destroy your faith. Let me just bring to you what's the truth here. But it's very insincere. And he's actually an evangelist of unbelief. And so we want to be aware that one of the tactics of a false teacher is they are audacious in their arrogance, even denying the Scriptures. Don't be gullible. In fact, on this topic, be aware that there are great answers to every question the skeptic brings up. I think part of the problem is that sometimes people want to be misled. So if you want to rebel against the Lord and you want to get into sin and you want to, you want to party, then a person might say, you know what, I can't just tell people that. 
I think I would like to, to explain my rebellion as I just have intellectual questions. So think about somebody off at college. They want to rebel against everything they were taught. They have find a professor who will tell them, look, there are intellectual reasons why you ought to abandon everything you were taught. And so they really want to go party, but let me just blame it on I'm just smarter now than my parents. I'm smarter than the church I came out of. Arrogance is all in this. So here Peter writes about these false teachers, and he describes them in three ways that point out their arrogance. First of all, he says they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. What's he talking about there? Well, it's peculiar to these first century false teachers that Peter was dealing with, but they were blaspheming these angelic beings, maybe even God himself, even though verse 11 says that even angels don't blaspheme other angels. That's something even angels don't do. But there's something about these false teachers who were so inflated in themselves and their own importance, they felt like they could cast out these blasphemous statements. Again, it's a mark of their arrogance. We see in verse 12 this statement, they're like irrational animals. So Peter, not impressed with these false teachers, and neither should we be. So you know, those, those who are skeptics, false teachers in the churches, they're not the intellectuals they would like to present themselves to be. When you reject the plain teaching of Scripture for something contrary, you're not an intellectual. You're just being unfaithful. Now, I know something about irrational animals. I live with one. We're beagle people in the booth house. We had a wonderful beagle, and then after that beagle passed away, we got another beagle. Beagles really aren't the brightest uh, in the uh, animal kingdom, we have learned, and and we're just beagle people. I'm always marveling at my irrational animal. If I pull out a little dog treat, that dog will do almost anything for that. Follow anywhere, and uh, it's just just irrational what this dog will do. Now, some of you are, are poodle people, and you're judging me right now. You're thinking, of course, you have a dumb beagle. You, you should be among us poodle people. And I'll grant you, poodles look a lot smarter. And we're told they are one of the brightest breeds. Um, I remember it was several years ago, I was taking my mother's dog into the groomer. Now, beagle people, we, never, we don't frequent groomers. My dog just sheds profusely everywhere. And uh, that's, that's another problem. But, but my mother had a Pekingese at the time, and I had to take this dog to the groomer. I already felt inadequate. I felt inferior. What am I doing, a beagle guy? I don't go to groomers. How does this whole thing work? So I walk her little Pekingese in there, and sure enough, I'm greeted by a big, beautiful poodle up on the table being groomed. I made eye contact with this majestic poodle, and I felt judged by the poodle. That poodle had a look, it's regal, looking down at me like, you're a beagle person. Like, why are you even in here? I felt like an imposter, at the, just in the sight of a majestic poodle. <laughs> but really, that poodle is just an irrational animal himself. And it just reminds me, these false teachers, they're going to fancy themselves an intellectual, but in reality, God's not impressed. They're just irrational animals. Whether they went to Cambridge or Harvard or Yale, so if you can't read the scriptures and be faithful to the scriptures, you're nothing more than an irrational animal in the view of God. Then verse 13 says, here's another mark of their pride, they're reveling in the daytime. Blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. There's something extremely brazen about how Peter describes these people. How about that reveling in the daytime, carousing in the daytime? So even many lost people know that what they're doing is shameful. And they're trying to do a lot of their worst behavior under the cover of darkness. I don't want other people to know I'm into this kind of stuff. I'm just going to kind of hide this. But Peter describes these people, they're reveling in the daytime. 
They're feasting with you. They're doing ungodly things in your presence. They're not even ashamed of things they ought to be ashamed of. Do you hear the arrogance of that? Let's stay on this topic for just a moment. Some people actually think they ought to get extra points from God because they're brazen in their sin. I've heard people say, hey, at least I'm honest about it. At least I'm not a hypocrite. Hypocrite tries to act like they're re religious and righteous, but they have this secret life. Listen, that is horrible. To be a hypocrite is odious. You must repent of that if you are a hypocrite. But neither does God look at you and go, oh, you're proud of your sin? Well, that's much better. No, you're, you're being arrogant, you're rebellious, and you have no sense of shame. That's horrible, and that is these false teachers. So watch out for arrogance in those who stand up and present. Uh, that is a mark of a false teacher. But there's another mark here that we find in our text, and it's this one. So watch out for arrogance, but also watch out for immorality. Watch out for immorality, and could there be a more relevant word for our generation than this word here? Peter calls out this repeatedly in our text. Remember back in verse 2 of this chapter, he said this of the false teachers, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Now into our text, verse 10, speaking of these false teachers, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Then did you notice verse 14? says it again. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. So a mark of a false teacher, first century and in our time, is that they both teach and practice immorality. And we have so much of this happening in our day. Many, many false teachers, this is where they've gone. This is the message that's very popular in our time, really from many pastors they're teaching sexual immorality. They're essentially saying there's no such thing as sexual sin. Anything you want to do in that realm is fine. That's the new teaching of these false teachers of our generation. So they would say things like this, that premarital sex is not sin. Anybody telling you that is a false teacher. I've heard a false teacher one time say that adultery is not sin. Not always. I watched one on television one time say this, a husband and wife there, and said... The, the situation was the husband had left his wife for a man and the false teacher said hey he had to be true to himself he had to be true to himself you need to understand this no he needed to be true to his vows that's adultery no matter what shape it takes we have false teachers today many of them who would say that homosexuality is not sin and you hear that from someone they're a false teacher they're making up their own teaching to suit their own desires or maybe what they think people want to hear that's not the truth of God's word listen one mainline denomination has gone all in in what they call a new reformation because they bought into the sexual revolution of our generation and so this was very sad I was on their website and listen to what their statement used to be for their clergy they used to have their clergy hold to a biblical standard of morality but they very proudly say, we don't hold that anymore. So listen to this. They say that standard added to the Book of Order in 1996 specifically stated that those ordained to office in our denomination were to, quote, live either in fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity in singleness. They're saying that's what we used to teach. That, listen again. This, this was a wonderful statement they used to believe. Their pastors should live either in fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness. But watch them proudly go off of that. The amendment, which was approved by a majority of the presbyteries, removed the specific standard for faithful living with regard to sexual practice. Instead, underlining the responsibility of councils to assess candidates for ordination or for installation guided by Scripture and the confessions. 
As a denomination, we have no uniform standard for ordination with regard to sexual relationship. We affirm that it is equally appropriate for councils of the church to apply different, even opposing standards in this area. Confusion in a denomination. So we're no longer going to hold to the, the teaching of the Bible in sexual morality. We're going to leave it up to every church and every council to decide for themselves. So there's confusion. And can you imagine what's being taught from those pulpits? If the pastors aren't even held to the biblical standard, can you imagine what they're teaching? In fact, you don't have to imagine it. It's all over our culture. So false teachers, one of their marks is they will promote sexual sin as harmless. Again, they'll say it's really not sin. Anything goes. But in reality, no matter what they teach, sexual sin does enslave people, brings great damage to people. Notice Peter talks about it here, 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Listen to this. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They're promising you, throw off all restraints. You'll be free, but it's not true. Actually, people are becoming slaves of their lust. So let's talk about that for just a moment, applying this to ourselves. This is how sexual sin works. You think you're breaking free to do what you want to do, but in reality, the sin takes over. Your lust will enslave you. You become a slave to your passions. I love the illustration that has been used through the years when it talks about possessing these, this powerful part of us, our, our sexual drives and all that. I love how it's described like a powerful river. And a river is beautiful and wonderful and productive when it stays within its banks. And so God has given us the banks of the river, how to possess all that's within us. But when a river breaches its banks, it's no longer beautiful. It's called a flood then, and it does great damage. And so here God mercifully has given us, here are the boundaries. I've given you these sexual desires. Here's how you channel them in a productive, wonderful way. But we say, no, I will not be limited, and great damage comes to ourselves and the people around us. Now, here's what we also know as we talk about this topic. Every person beyond a certain age anyway, every person has sinned sexually in some way. So, so in the room, if that's you, you're not alone. You're in good company because everyone has. For many, it's in their thoughts. Remember, Jesus talked about if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. We don't give that a pass. Many have imagined things, have a thought life that's very impure. Everybody has sinned in one or some of these ways. Maybe watching things you should not have been watching online or on television reading things that are inappropriate, maybe even the way you joke. It's very vulgar, sexual in nature, or the things that people have physically done with someone else. Here's the point. We're all in need of grace. We need forgiveness, all of us, even in this realm of life. And aren't you glad grace is available through Jesus Christ? So our message is not that there's no such thing as sin. Our message is, listen, we've all sinned. And we have a Savior who can cleanse us from all of our sin. Hear the word of God, 1 John 1, 9. So, so don't sit here staying in condemnation. You can be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. What a wonderful promise. Can I give you an illustration of this? Even from the old covenant, David. David, you maybe know, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. And when confronted with this sin, 
he confessed to God. And I want you to hear how he cried out for forgiveness, and I want you to know he received that forgiveness. Hang with me with this. This is Psalm 51 and following, verses 1 and following. David cried out to God after his sin, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Listen to this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David cried out in his guilt in the realm of sexual sin and added to it even murder. Cried out and did he receive forgiveness? He absolutely did. And he was once again useful to the Lord until he died. And so, listen, there's good news for us in our sin. Even in this realm, there's a God who can forgive you. Jesus died on the cross for these sins as well and was raised from the dead. And if you come to him in confession, he would be delighted to forgive you. Can I remind you, it was God's idea to forgive you. He came up with the idea. You're asking him to do something that he wants to do for you. So don't run from him. Run to him. Another great example from the Old Covenant is Rahab. I thought about her this morning in preparation for coming. Rahab was a prostitute, put her faith in the God of Israel, became a part of God's people. And when you read the genealogy of Jesus, our Savior, she's a part of the genealogy. Can God forgive people of their sins and make them new? He can. He did it for David. He did it for Rahab. He can do it for all of us. And so let's just hover on this topic, this difficult topic for just a few more moments, painful topic when failing in this area. Can I just remind you to reach out for help? If you're struggling here, you feel like, yes, I have become enslaved to these things that I thought would make me free. Would you reach out for help this week? Not, not to be condemned by people in the church, but to be loved and, and brought to freedom. You can reach out to a pastor. You can reach out to your life group leader, maybe a strong Christian friend, but ask for help. If you're failing in the realm of what you're watching, what you're seeing, maybe even online, listen, ask somebody to be an accountability person in your life. There's great software for that as well, Covenant Eyes, among others. But, but invite somebody to help you. Don't, don't suffer and be enchained by yourself. Ask for help. Or maybe in your dating, can I give you some advice there to make sure that you don't cross lines when you're dating? Don't be completely alone with somebody that you're dating. Be alone at Panera with them. If you're on a lower budget, be alone at McDonald's with them. I would personally advocate be alone at Taco Bell. I love Taco Bell. <laughs> and so be alone, but with them. Be alone with other friends around. Be, be careful here. It's a powerful area of life, and none of us are beyond falling. And so just exercise wisdom here. And, and again, while we're on this topic, let's just nail down again. What is true? What has God taught us in the realm of human sexuality? What is his design for this gift he's given us? Here it is. God created male and female. The only legitimate sexual expression with another person is between a husband and wife within marriage. Any other sexual act with another person is 
sinful. Any other message than that is coming from a false teacher. So we're watching out for arrogance. We're watching out for immorality in the teacher. But we're also watching out for greed. See it with me, verses 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So who is this Balaam? Well, the Bible talks about him in Numbers chapter 22 through Numbers chapter 25. It's a fascinating story, very entertaining. I encourage you maybe this afternoon to, to take up Numbers 22 through 25. Read about Balaam. But basically, here is the situation where he comes into play. Balak, the king of Moab, is nervous because the children of Israel are coming through his land. And so he hires Balaam, a prophet, to pronounce a curse on God's people. Balaam wanted the money. Balaam wanted the reward that Balak was promising. And yet God wouldn't let him do it. Even a donkey involved in prohibiting Balaam from doing this thing. And so Balaam is recognizing, I can only give blessings on God's people. I can't even give a curse. But there he still wanted the money. And so he came up with a way, the scripture indicates, that he was able to teach Balak, the king of Moab, listen, God will curse him himself if you get them into immorality. Back to that topic. And so that's what happened. The scripture writes about it, Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. So moved by greed, he found a way to try to get God's people to stumble into sin. So we talk about false teachers. It makes sense. If they're not driven by a passion for Jesus, if they're not driven by a love for God's people, something else is driving them. And we come back to these three things, maybe all three of them, driven by their own pride, driven by greed, or driven by their own lust. Have you ever heard maybe uh, a pastor in one of these denominations that's left the scriptures or maybe in the Baptist churches and you see somebody like, they don't even believe in this. Why would they choose to be a pastor if you don't believe in him? And I think some of them, it's pride. Like, that's, a, that's an honorable profession. I can stand up and, and help people. I can be like a chaplain, even though I don't believe any of this. Or certainly greed. It's a paycheck for many of them. And well, you and I are to watch out for this. So this greed is not a new motivation in our time, though we do see it in our time, right? So we've talked about, and we'll have to talk about it, I suppose, till Jesus comes again, against the prosperity gospel. There are some of the largest churches in our country no longer teach the gospel of salvation through Jesus. They'll give some token word to that, but it's all about the prosperity gospel. If you believe enough, manifest enough, confess enough, and certainly give enough money into their ministry, you can be rich. And it is a false gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. I read this week about another church in that movement, a large church in Detroit. In a very poor neighborhood of Detroit is a large church. The pastor, we're told, lives in a mansion and drives a Rolls Royce. Think of the, think of the contrast there. Poor neighborhood, large church, and he's living large. Well, in that church, on a given Sunday, a person there said that they, listen, listen to the wording, they started the offering at $1,000. How do you start an offering? That's like an auction. When you start the bidding here, like if you're going to give an offering, start at $1,000. How ungodly is that? But they were merciful. They said, if you can't give $1,000, you give $300. Interesting. And furthermore, if you don't have cash, we have an ATM out in the lobby. That's ungodly. That's greed. And, and you would think nobody would fall for that. As I mentioned, it was a large church. 
there in that area. Many people, maybe the idea is, look, I want to be rich like the pastor's rich. I want to drive a Rolls Royce. And he says, if I give into his ministry, God's going to bring the blessing. I think the greed of people is able to be played upon by the greed of the leader. Listen, it's horrible. It's spiritually abusive for any kind of leader to manipulate people for his own financial gain. So we are to watch out for a message of getting rich by giving. Now, it's true the Scripture talks about God loving a cheerful giver, but we're not to be manipulated into giving. We're not giving as some kind of gimmick. Well, if I give it, then I'm going to be living a lavish life. That's never been promised to us in the Scripture. I am grateful that God can bless us financially when we're, when we're obedient, but listen, he may, he may not make you a wash in money when you give. He may bless you in some other ways. Maybe through the ongoing struggle, He draws you close, and your heavenly rewards are going to be greater even through year after year of struggle. We leave all that to the hands of God, but watch out for a greedy teacher that are rife across our culture who would teach you through giving into their ministry, you're somehow guaranteed a healing, guaranteed financial blessing or something like that. But we also watch out for greed in ourselves. Well, then we come to this. Look at verse 17. Here Peter just kind of closes this section talking about how these false teachers with all their marks and characteristics, they are useless and once again tells us and they are doomed. Verse 17. These are waterless springs. That's pretty useless. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Another strong word of judgment for anybody who would speak lies in the name of God. And so the point for us, let's not be gullible. Let's be discerning here. Let's watch out for these marks in the false teacher. One writer said it this way. He said, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. In fact, Jesus himself said it this way, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And it's true. So we should expect of our leaders two things. We should expect orthodoxy and what we could also call orthopraxy. In other words, our leaders should have the right beliefs, but also corresponding right behavior. Our leaders should have the right doctrine and the right conduct, the right teaching, but also the right living going with it. And so let's be on guard. And then one other way we should apply this, we've been looking outward at people who might be full of pride and immorality and greed, but let's check ourselves first before we go. And so would you invite God, even in these moments, to examine your heart and your mind and ask questions like this, Lord, can you show me if I've allowed any pride into my own heart and mind? Isn't pride one of those subtle sins? We didn't recognize it, so suddenly we may shift away from a Jesus focus in our lives to a focus all about ourselves. And, and this is the perfect moment. He'll be merciful where you say, Lord, I, I see that. Thank you for showing me that. I, I've been wrong. And I want to put you back in your rightful place in my life. And I dethrone myself. Forgive me for my pride. He'll be merciful to you. Likewise, would you ask God, Lord, we've talked about the, the immorality and the false teachers. Lord, would you search my mind and heart and show me if there's any sexual immorality in me? Is there any way I've given myself a pass? I've been excusing some things that you and I know are wrong. Ask him to show you. He'll be merciful to you. 
the scripture again tells you to confess, Lord, I agree with you. I've been wrong and that's got to go from me. Would you help me break free from that? He'll be merciful to you. And then what about greed? Another one of those subtle ones. We all need money. With inflation, we need more and more money. But we've got to be careful that money doesn't become a driving force in our lives. We need it. It needs to stay in the background of our lives with our passion all about Jesus, not willing to become unfaithful to get it. And so ask the Lord, Lord, is there any greed in my life? Have I, have I lost my focus and begun chasing that rather than chasing after you? He'll be merciful. He'll forgive you as you confess. Pray with me.